Hello, and welcome to the Woodard Report podcast, where we empower business advisors to transform businesses. This podcast is your source for information and news you need for your accounting, bookkeeping, or tax practice. And it is proudly sponsored by Expensify, the expense management app that does it all for every business. For more information about Expensify, please visit woodard.com slash podcast. And now your hosts, Joe Woodard and Heather Satterley. Well, I'm excited to be here with you and also with the one of the most esteemed minds in physics in the world who's going to be joining us at Scaling New Heights as well. His name is Dr. Michio Kaku. He's um, a theoretical physicist. There are lots of kinds of physicists. You're a theoretical one, Dr. Kaku. Uh, with published works like The Physics of the Impossible, you might have seen him on the History Channel's television show, The Universe. That's where I first encountered you, Dr. Kaku. It was an amazing, amazing series. Um, while you do continue to make a lot of contributions, significant ones to science, many of your most recent works are about artificial intelligence, quantum computing, robotics at business, and the impacts on culture. And that's that's what's brought you to our, our podcast today, which is an audience of small business advisors. And, and increasingly more enterprise business advisors. And I know they're very interested to see, okay, what's this intersection of now quantum physics and how it's going to affect the way I and my clients run their businesses. Um, we're approaching that. We're going to talk about that today with Dr. Kaku. Um, his most recent published work is entitled Quantum Supremacy, How the Quantum Computer Revolution Will Change Everything and... That represents a new thought leadership role that Dr. Kaku has taken on to try to guide us all through this massive change that's coming. So welcome, Dr. Kaku, to the podcast. Well, after such a great introduction, I can't <laughs> wait to hear the speaker myself. <laughs> and I knew you were going to lead out with a joke, and I know you're very funny because I've watched a lot of your interviews. So, so I'm looking forward to being with you today. It's going to be a blast. Now, before we talk about quantum computers... It might be a good idea for our listeners to understand quantum physics because the two are inseparable. So could you just take about maybe 60 seconds, two minutes at the most, and explain quantum physics to us? That'd be great. Go. I'm, I'm joking. All right, but, but do your best to try to help us all catch up with the essentials. Well, quantum physics is basically atomic physics, physics of the atom. And transistors are becoming so small now, you can put a billion of them on your fingertip. And it means, therefore, that transistors are going to be approaching the size of an atom. At that point, classical physics breaks down. Now, your mother taught you when you were a kid, you cannot be two places at the same time. Remember that? You can't be two places at the same time. Well, she was wrong. In the quantum world, electrons can be many places at the same time, which vastly increases their computational firepower. And that's the reason why quantum computers are, in some sense, infinitely more powerful than the standard digital computers, which compute on zeros and ones, zeros and ones. So the fact that electrons can be multiple places at the same time gives tremendous computational power for the quantum computer. And that's why Mother Nature, in some sense, is a quantum computer. So I did read that in the book. And... An example you used is photosynthesis. You said photosynthesis is a quantum process. Can you explain what you mean by that? 
Well, when you think about it, how do we discover new drugs? How do we discover what's happening inside the body? Trial and error. How did we discover penicillin? Trial and error. How do we discover new drugs? Trial and error. We get thousands of Petri dishes, dope them with uh, what we think is a potential uh, uh, medicine, and cross our fingers. That's not the way Mother Nature does it. Mother Nature works at the atomic level, at the molecular level. That's why we can't cure cancer, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's diseases. Many of the diseases that afflict the human race are at the atomic level. And digital computers compute on zeros and ones, zeros and ones, zeros and ones. In fact, as far as I can tell, in the entire universe, the only place where you'll find zeros and ones, zeros and ones, is on the planet Earth. Mother Nature is not a digital computer. Mother I love Nature that. Mother Nature is a quantum computer. All right. I love that. So once we begin to compute like all of nature, then we can start to what, uh, manipulate nature, including then cure cancer? That's right. When I go outside and I look at the trees and the sun and the birds and the bees and the insects, I realize that they're performing quantum mechanical calculations that are far beyond the zeros and ones, zeros and ones, zeros and ones that a digital computer can perform. That's why we don't have cures for many diseases. That's why we don't have new sources of energy. That's why Mother Nature is still ahead of us. And that's why I say learn from Mother Nature. If Mother mm. Nature is quantum, and that's how she does her miracles of photosynthesis, nitrogen fixing for fertilizers, and fusion for the stars, if that's the language of Mother Nature, then let's learn from Mother Nature. So it's more than just computing power, because computing power is part of it. It changes the entire nature of the way a computer operates right? Uh, but there right. is sort of still a comparison between the computing power of the most powerful binary computers of today. Because when you're saying zero ones, you're talking about binary computers, computing. The most powerful binary computers today versus are not very powerful by, com by quantum's potential existing quantum computers. I mean, how do they compare? What's the computational difference? Well, there's something called Moore's Law. Moore's Law says the computer power for a digital computer doubles every 18 months or so. Well, Moore's Law is the basis of the world economy. Nations, militaries, CIAs, all of them depend upon Moore's Law. But Moore's Law is collapsing right before our eyes. Computer power is not doubling every 18 months. In fact, transistors are now so small that leakage takes place. Heat builds up. And of course, heat and the buildup of all this tremendous amount of firepower causes the chip to melt down. And that's why we have to go to atomic computers, quantum computers, because Mother Nature does it for free without having to worry about meltdowns and all sorts of problems that you get by squeezing transistors down to the size of an atom. We have to learn how Mother Nature does it. And Mother Nature does it in our bodies. Mother Nature does it in the stars. Mother Nature does it in the, in the forests and the trees. All of that done at the atomic level. So we have to dust off our books on quantum mechanics <laughs> and learn to think quantum. I love it. Dust off your books, maybe, Dr. Kaku. I didn't have any books on quantum physics. 
<laughs> but you could go dust yours off. That's great. Um, I'm just having to learn a little bit about it because I, I've coming at from the technology side. Now, um, when when we're getting into um, like your the, the actual existent quantum computers, because Google has built these, other companies have built these, some companies out of China have built them, and they're already operating with a certain number of, of what you describe in the book as qubits, right? But when I watched your special, your interview on 60 Minutes, um, they were talking about how hard it was to keep the existent quantum computing computer cooled down. Is that just because we haven't gotten the engineering of it right? What's causing that heating problem? Well, first of all, think of an atom in a magnetic field, a spinning top. It can, let's say, spin up or spin down. Two states, up or down, spinning clockwise, spinning counterclockwise. That's the paradigm for digital computers. That's why they're called digital computers. But a quantum computer can spin in any direction you want. Now, how many more directions are there that you can do with a quantum computer than with an ordinary digital computer? The answer is infinite. There are infinitely more orientations that you can make by a free-swinging atom than with an atom in a magnetic field that goes up or down. However, this is a very delicate proposition because if somebody sneezes in the other room, or if there's a, uh, somebody burps or if there's a small tremor someplace, there goes the coherence of your, your quantum mechanical system. So we have to cool it down to near absolute zero. Now, Mother Nature can just do it cleanly at room temperature. We're not that good yet. We can't do it at room temperature. Mother Nature does it at room temperature. We have to cool it down to near absolute zero. And so there's a race, a race between China the United States and many other countries to cool it down to the point where we can do calculations without destabilizing the atom. And of course, if somebody sneezes, well, there goes your coherence. And so this has to be done very carefully. This is a billion dollar question. So it's a, and it's a question of who can win basically a coherence race, right? Keep, keep the process coherent at all states. That's right. And the Chinese are betting on not electrons, but on photons, particles of light. So different people, different nations are betting on different horses. In mm. the United States, we're betting on the electron horse. That is, we're betting that we can create qubits and compute on qubits using electrons, similar to semiconductor industry here today. The Chinese are saying, bah, humbug. Let's go the way quantum goes, and that uses photons. So they're using light, computers based out of uh, light. And so different nations are trying different avenues, and it's not clear who's going to win. It's a horse race, and it's not clear who's going to win the horse race. But whoever wins that horse race could, in some sense, dominate the world economy. Well, and that's where I was going to get to in just a minute. So I was going to ask you some questions about those implications, uh, positive and negative. But before I do, um, how close then, I mean, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but just it, it, in your best guess, when will quantum computers become commercially available? Well, first of all, they already are commercial available in an abbreviated form. Uh, the Canadians are actually selling a quantum computer which is not doesn't have the full power of a quantum computer, but aspects of the quantum computer are there, and so they're already on the market. 
However, there is this race, as I said, and it's growing exponentially in terms of the number of qubits that we can field. IBM right now is one of the leaders, for example. It's already talking about fielding thousands of, of qubits, and these qubits are quantum mechanical bits rather than zeros and ones, zeros and ones. It's anything in between zeros and one. And how many more states are there between zeros and one? Infinitely more states than simply the zeros and one. So it's a race. And it's not clear who's going to win, but I say within five to 10 years. That's the time frame we're talking about. And that's why already the U.S. government is issuing warnings. Warnings that when it does come, people could be caught flat-footed and a quantum computer can break, in principle, any known digital code. The crown jewels, the crown jewels of any company, any nation, could be stolen with a quantum computer. Well, and when... when um distributed ledgers blockchains came out it was supposed to be the unbreakable you know code uh, can they also break the blockchain the blocks in the blockchain anything that is digital can be broken by a quantum computer so even the blockchain's before, not safe the number of states that a quantum computer operates on is infinitely larger than the number of states that zeros and ones zeros and ones can can encapsulate and so we see the power. So any digital code can be broken by a quantum computer. So it's so once it hits, we have to go all quantum because nothing else is safe. That's now, what you're... I have my own personal point of view, and that is we have to use quantum to fight quantum. That is, using quantum devices to detect the presence of somebody tampering with your computer uh, using their quantum computer. So I think ultimately it could be quantum versus quantum. Yeah. Well, and I think that may be inevitable based off of what you're just saying. Um, and, and I'm wondering, you know, if, if, if several things could happen here, you know, just as I'm um, imagining, of course, I'm a science fiction guy. So I like to go imagine the future and look back on our, our century. It's a lot of fun to do. And, um, and as I'm thinking through what that might be, I'm wondering if historians will be writing a, about the quantum wars, right? Probably. When we look at an antique store, we see the abacus. And the abacus was quite a tremendous invention by the Chinese. It allowed them to calculate uh, wars and supplies and troops and crops and things like that that the Europeans could not, the invention of the abacus. Well, our descendants may view the digital computer like an abacus. How quaint. A digital computer that computes on zeros and ones, zeros and ones, but not the way Mother Nature computes on proteins and DNA and and molecules. And so I think that our children or grandchildren may look back at this era and say that the digital era was a passing phase, a passing phase before we enter the quantum era and began to follow Mother Nature. So we've talked now a lot about the computing power and some of the hardware involved in that. I want to talk also, which you address in the book, about artificial intelligence. And there's an intersection point where artificial intelligence intersects quantum computing. And when you paint this picture of the future, Dr. Kaku, of uh, 
we're cancer-free, poverty-free, we're feeding the world, we're traveling the stars. By the way, I love that vision of the future. It's very Gene Roddenberry, right? Technology is going to solve so many problems in the world. Is, how, how involved does AI have to be with that? Is that a computing power thing alone? Is it an AI thing alone or do they need each other? They need each other because AI is a question of software. In other words, it's a question of coding. It's not a question of hardware. No, software of today is uh, the backbone of artificial intelligence. It's all done by software. Quantum computers is hardware. We're talking about the heavy-duty calculations that are required. And so what is the problem with uh, chatbots, for example? The problem with chatbots is that there's no error correction. Uh, Teenage boys can write all sorts of nonsense and have it picked up by some quantum computer and then splattered all over the airwaves, okay? There's no fact-checking, right, wrong, truth, false. It's all um, a jumble because there's no editor. Why? Because there's no computer power powerful enough to fact-check the entire internet. This is where quantum computers can come in. Quantum computers are hardware, not software. And because it's a question of hardware, they can, in fact, be the fact-checker that allows you to fact-check what's happening on the web, okay? And so that's one way that the two can complement each other, that quantum computers give you the firepower by which artificial intelligence can then do its marvelous feats. I see. So right now, artificial intelligence's full potential is constrained by binary computers. They're about to be liberated. Okay. But then we kind of get into Asimov's warning. You liberate artificial intelligence too much and and it can take over no matter how much you program in safeguards. That was the whole iRobot warning, right? Um, Is he... Is he prophetic or is he chicken little? I mean, which one? Well, any technology can be used for good or bad. I mean, when we picked up a stick and made a bow and arrow, we said, oh, wow, we can catch squirrels or we can catch game that way. But then you can also point the bow and arrow at another human and conquer neighboring tribes that way. And so any technology can be used for good or bad, period. So I'd say that, yes, there has to be constraints on the technology. Just like, uh, for example, take a look at uh, chatbots that are the rage right now. Um, There's no sensor. There's no guardrails on chatbots. But think of the birth of comic books and the birth of the movies. There was a movie code. Remember that? There was a code that gave you a rating as to how obscene this movie is and whether or not children are allowed uh, are recommended to see this movie. Comic books had the Comic Code of America, where the question of, of having monster tales uh, compete against Superman was a big topic. And so we got used to the fact that there's self-censorship, self-censorship of comic books, self-censorship of movies, at the end of the movie, there's a statement saying, this movie was fake. Every actor in this movie was fake. This movie is entirely fake. It may turn out that we need something like that. First, we need a code to fact check these uh, these articles that are coming out from chatbots. And second of all, self-policing. Just like comic books today are self-policed. We don't have that comic code of America anymore because comic books are self-policed. But you, you're talking, you know, once once AI then can pass the Turing test, you're in the Blade Runner universe of, you're saying there needs to be a 
coded check there that basically says this is a this is fake, this is fake, this is not a real person, right? Kind of like a flag over their head just to remind us we're you know, don't be fooled, this is not a real human, if I interpreted that right. Because once they pass the Turing test, you know, we could be in trouble. And to kind of and to kind of extend your metaphor out with the bow and arrow, it's it, the big difference here is that the bow could jump out of your hands, turn around, float in the midair and shoot you back. Right. Because so, it has its own, at least mimicked human intelligence. And I think whether that's science fiction or science reality, it's definitely the warning of many of those offers like uh, authors like Asimov. So um, so so we do need checks on it. We need to make sure that those checks are programmed as it's policing us to fact check us. I think artificial intelligence has been proven to be biased if programmed that way or if taught to be that way. So we have to be careful that it's not introducing biases, right? So it's a minefield that we have to navigate. Well, see, we're in the early stages of the computer revolution. Believe it or not, we're <laughs> simply at the door, opening the door to artificial intelligence. And that's why we have all these moral questions of what right or wrong, how far can you go when you say something? Are you slandering somebody? What happens when you impersonate the president of the United States and have the president's image say all sorts of nonsense. Uh, that's just nothing but the fact that the technology is in its infancy. Just like when comic books started to feature monsters and the movies started to be, be too, uh, too risque, uh, people had to, to uh, make laws. And once the laws were passed, people got used to the fact that movies today and comic books today are self-policed. Okay. They are very mindful of the impact of comic books on the young populations because otherwise the government's going to step in and no one wants that. And so uh, media has matured, matured from the phase when it was a free-for-all, anyone can say anything, to the point now where we're at self-policing. And so I think that's where it's going to go. We're at the early stages, believe it or not, the early stages of the computer revolution where all sorts of teenage boys can say all sorts of nonsense and have it picked up. Uh, by the yes. wire services. Well, and those same teenage boys could be victimized or teenage girls could be victimized by that same set of technology. We're seeing some of that as well. Um, right. And so you're right. We do need self-placing. We need, we do need, you know, where victims are concerned. We do need governments involved. There's, but there's so much to map. This is a maze where the, the walls move. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how we figure it all out. Right. But that's the fun thing, too, because, you know, we're actually uh, creating a new culture, a new cyber culture where we have to deal with the fact that a knowledge is, is practically infinite and we can create all sorts of infinite nonsense. And therefore, there has to be, you know, limits to self-policing. And so today, nobody wants to do a horror comic book with all sorts of kids being savagely cut up and so on and so forth. No, that doesn't sell because we're self-policed. We don't even think about that anymore, okay? Mm. But that's the way it was in the 1950s. You look at comic books in the 1950s, there was lots of gore and lots of uh, mutilations and stuff like that in the 50s. None of that exists today, even without censorship. So, yeah, we censor with our money, don't we, and with our, with our economic choices. That's, that's a good point. Um, and kind of speaking now over to the finance side and sort of the impact on business, um, obviously, there's a ripple effect that's going to affect uh, everything from the medical industries to the way businesses operate. But this audience that you're addressing right now is specifically accounting professionals. 
They're professional bookkeepers, tax preparers, auditors, financial coaches, financial advisors. Um, and I'm, I'm interested in what your what your thinking is here in a world where artificial intelligence and sex intersects quantum computing. When that technology has become commercially available and ubiquitous, what happens to the professional in, professional industries? Well, there was an interview with a scientist who was asked the question, will chemists become obsolete? We're not going to have to do chemical experiments anymore. We'll do it inside the memory of a quantum computer. So will chemists lose their job? And the answer was, chemists who do not use quantum computers will lose their jobs. Chemists who do use quantum computers will have the power of their job vastly increased. Same thing with accounting. Accountants of the future who do not rely on this new technology will go bankrupt, they'll be fired, they'll be out of a job. Accountants who've mastered this technology and work with it will thrive. And that's the key because numbers have no moral direction. Numbers cannot tell you what is true or what is false. Numbers cannot tell you who's cheating, who's lying, who's being deceptive. That you need a human being. So in other words, to do the dirty work, we're going to have to have quantum computers and digital computers do the dirty work, the number crunching. But the final analysis has to be done by a human because a human can say, aha, I smell something. Something's not right. I don't quite know what it is, but something is wrong. Same thing with x-rays. You realize that now computers can analyze x-rays faster than a human can. But sometimes there's the oddball x-ray of a disease we've never seen before, something unusual that slips right by the computer. That's why you need a human to do overall thinking about what is good, what is bad, what is accurate, or what is fishy. And so I think in the accounting industry, a lot of the dirty work will be done by computers, okay? There's no doubt about that. There's a vast amount of information. But the final checks, the final analysis has to be done by a human because humans can say, aha, I smell a rat. Something is not right. That would fly right by a computer. I love that answer. And it does mean that, that even though it will not displace chemists, there may be fewer chemists. Okay, is that safe to say? Because you don't have to have as much legwork done, but at least chemists will exist. There might be fewer accountants, but accountants work will, will persist. But there's a difference between those examples you gave in accountancy that I think is really important. And I want to agree with you and then take it a step farther. With chemists and with doctors, there is either an inherent distancing from the object of your work, meaning I'm not directly connected to the people that use my research with chemists, or I have to have a professional bedside manner distancing with doctors. With accountants, we do not necessarily have to have that. As a matter of fact, we're encouraged not to have that uh, professional distancing. So I would add to it that, the yes, you're absolutely right. There's no intuition and computers don't have wisdom. They have information, but they don't have wisdom, right? They can run calculations, but they cannot intuit, right? I he hear you all know that. But there's an emotional side to it, I would add, for the accounting profession. And sometimes an accountant is supposed to either figuratively, or I've even had my CPA once do it literally, hold my hand. He put his hand on top of my hand at a breakfast meeting because I was going through something tough. 
and comfort me human to human. Try to try to get that out of a quantum computer, right? Well, I think the two paradigms you mentioned are going to converge in the sense that it'll quantum computers will vastly increase the amount of data that we're going to be able to extract by testing a patient. Mountains and mountains of data that didn't exist before. Things about cancer that eluded that eluded uh, machines before will be detected. And this is where humans come in because humans make sense out of all this massive data. They have experience. They say, I've seen this before. Or they say something is not right. And so I think that that's where it has to be a partnership. That's what I'm getting at. A human-machine partnership that they can accentuate each other's ability. The quantum computer increases the firepower that the doctor has looking at all these thousands and thousands of x-ray charts and things like that. But ultimately, it depends on a human to look at all this mess and say, something is wrong. Something is really wrong. And stop the press. Something is wrong and we have to correct it, even on a hunch, okay? Because, you know, computers have no hunches. They simply right. do they have no hunches. Do. Well, and, you know, when you think about, and I come back to Gene Roddenberry because I am a, a self-confessed Star Trek nerd. And when, when you look at the, and I know you follow sci- science fiction too, you've even written books and had interviews about the, you know, uh, theoretical physics and, and the impact on, on science fiction. Uh, but when you look at the way that he painted his Star Trek universe, especially in the first series and the Next Generation series, that would have been the 60s and the early 90s, 80s and 90s, he painted that exact picture. They had some of the most intelligent computers, um, you know, that we we could imagine and conceive, yet they were in a back and forth relationship with them. They had conversations with them because the computer couldn't figure it out by itself. And you had the dynamics of the emotional Kirk who confused Spock all the time, but somehow got to the right answer. You know, so the, these dynamics were were projected by the people that were watching where the industry was going in a prophetic way, right? And so we, so I think what we're seeing is some of that manifest now, but I think we could also take a same kind of lesson from it and say, we need to make sure we paint this kind of future. Yes, so I think that it's not that robots are going to replace humans, is that there's going to be a partnership by which computers will accentuate and empower humans, increase their ability, okay? For example, think of the horse. We used to have blacksmiths in every village. Every village had a blacksmith. And then with the coming of the car, people thought, oh, oh, there goes the blacksmith. There goes our, I mean, there goes our ability to do transportation. If anything, transportation exploded, it went the other direction. Instead of the blacksmith being put out of business and transportation going to zero, it vastly increased the ability to transport things but the coming of the internal combustion engine. And so I think we have to look at it that way, that technologies, do, it's not basically a zero-sum game. It's a game where the whole society, all of society benefited with the coming of the internal combustion engine. Yes. And if you look at probably, you know, if you just want to think you don't know that it happened this way, but it was likely that the blacksmiths of generation A became the steel workers of generation B. So what I would say to the to the young professionals who are listening in, don't be daunted by what 
Dr. Kaku uh, is saying here about, and what I'm talking about here, just understand that your blacksmith of today work may become steelwork of tomorrow. And as, as the technology advances, I want you to, to take Dr. Kaku's uh, you know, advice, adapt with it, adopt it, and make sure that your work evolves with it. Think of the relationship between a carpenter and a hammer. A hammer does not replace the carpenter. The hammer emboldens, empowers the carpenter, but the hammer does not replace the carpenter at all. And in the same way, having all these gadgets, having all these gadgets in the office, it vastly increases the firepower of the accountant to be able to digest tremendous amounts of data very, very quickly. But ultimately, for what purpose? Why? I mean, in what direction you're going? What is the purpose of all this? These are decisions that an adding machine cannot make. An adding machine simply adds, just like a hammer. A hammer simply breaks things. But to create something new from a hammer, that requires a human. So for a hammer to simply break something up and create data, that's easy. But for a hammer to create something new, something creative, something that'll generate profits and beauty and so on and so forth, that requires a human. I can't think of a better way to end than that because that is beautifully said. Dr. Kaku, it has been a pleasure to be with you today and I look forward to joining you in Orlando, June 2024 for Scaling New Heights where you're gonna be on our main stage talking to us more about what's happening with this quantum revolution. Dr. Kaku, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. For more information, please visit woodard.com slash podcast.